CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. And so we begin another week on Political Rewind. Um, Glad to have all of you uh, with us. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, this is a pretty significant week for politics. Um, as we all know, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump begins tomorrow. The legislature continues its session down at the uh, under the Gold Dome. And uh, so for a good portion of the week, we'll have a lot of conversations about what's happening politically in Washington and here in the state of Georgia. But um, it's time for us, we felt, to turn our attention to talking once again about coronavirus, where things stand in Georgia. And we particularly want to answer some of the many questions that you've been sending us, either tweeting to us, getting to me in emails. And uh, so we've uh, brought together a terrific panel to do just that. Um, Before I introduce them, though, something that has occurred to me in the almost year now that we've been dealing with the virus is that there are a lot of people out there who seem confused about many aspects of what they need to do to protect themselves, how the virus infects them, um, what about the vaccine, when can they get it, why is the supply so limited for many people right now. Lots of questions, and they, they, it reminds me that in many ways, scientists are just now beginning to really learn all they need to know about this novel virus. So, for instance, at the very beginning, CDC recommended that people shouldn't wear masks because they thought that only essential health care workers should have masks and the rest of us didn't want to take those away from the people operating on the front lines. Subsequently, uh, CDC and many other public health experts said no masks are vital. We've all got to wear them to stop the spread. Now we're being told by some that maybe we should wear two masks. So variations like that have made some people suspicious of public health officials and what they know and don't know, and others just plain confused. But what it comes right down to, it seems to me, and I'll ask our panel about this in a minute, is that we're all learning about this virus as scientists continue to learn about it as well. With that in mind, let me introduce the panel and we'll move forward uh, with our conversation today. I'm very happy that we are joined by Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who is the Executive Associate Dean of the Emory School of Medicine and the Grady Health System. And he um, is uh, uh, also a distinguished professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Emory School of Medicine and has extensive work at the Rollins School of Public Health. Thank you, Dr. Del Rio, for taking the time to be with us today. Happy to be with you, Bill. We're also joined today by Dr. Harry Hyman, who is a clinical associate professor at the Georgia State University School of Public Health. He is a primary care physician. His areas of expertise are also in health policies and disparities. And uh, so, uh, Dr. Hyman, we're looking forward to your observations on the show today. Thank you for being here as well. Thank you, Bill. And um, Ariel Hart, 
who is the health policy reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and who, along with a number of her colleagues, has been uh, working, uh, it feels like, around the clock to document what's happening with the virus in the state of Georgia and beyond. Hi, Ariel. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Sure. All right. Let me start with some data and then move on from there, if I may. According to the Georgia Department of Public Health, uh, we are we have now had <laughs> 772,000, almost 773,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state. We have had 13,326 deaths, unfortunately, and hospitalizations uh, right now are around 50 2,000. Nationally, uh, we see interesting numbers that show us things are in decline, as they seem to be in Georgia as well. The average number of new cases in the United States as of this weekend fell to 118,000, which is a 3% decrease from just the day before. Uh, It's since January, though, of last year, at least one in 12 people in the United States have been infected and at least one in 716 have died. So, all right, so Dr. Del Rio, I think the first question that we need to uh, try to get uh, a handle on is, we're hearing that cases are down, hospitalizations are down here in Georgia and across the country. Are we getting a handle on this virus, even as new strains, new variants uh, begin to uh, become more ubiquitous? Where do we stand? Is the virus being... Uh, contain? Well, I mean, I think this bill is a is a story that we've seen. We saw it over the summer. You know, there's a peak, uh, then uh, people start getting concerned. They start, uh, you know, using more uh, mitigation strategies like wearing masks and socially distance and getting concerned. And I think, you know, this, this last peak was really incredibly high nationwide, in great part due to, you know, we had what I call the trifecta of holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's you know, right after each other, really led to a lot of indoor gatherings and a lot of transmission. As, as holidays go away and, uh, and weather starts getting warmer, you know, we start seeing cases go down. But I would say that, that there's also a, you know, more people have been infected, so immunity countrywide is probably around, you know, somewhere between 16 to 20 percent of Americans have already been infected, and then we're rolling out vaccines. So overall, we're seeing cases gone down. We're still at a pretty high level. I mean, when you consider right now, we're still higher than we were last at the peak of last summer. So my my concern is I don't want people to say, oh, it's coming down. We need to drop in our in our mitigation strategies. I, I think people need to realize that we're still at a pretty high level. And, you know, yesterday we had a Super Bowl. I'm, I'm concerned about Super Bowl parties. I'm concerned about what transmission after that. So I think we still need to, if you, when you say, have we gotten a handle? No, I think the virus is still getting a handle on us. And, and quite frankly, we're not in a place that I can feel comfortable that this is going to go away. What's my goal? My goal is that we see in a countrywide less than 1,000 deaths per day, that we see less than, you know, 30,000, 40,000 new infections per day. We're, we're way far from there. So we have a ways to go. Dr. Hammond, I think I am uh, got this figure right. Uh, yesterday, I saw that in, in Georgia, the number of positives uh, from testing is somewhere around 10.5, 10.6 percent. 
my understanding of it is that's way higher than we need it to be to believe that the virus is uh, in some ways slowing down. There's obviously lots of different metrics uh, that people can look at to get a handle on the on the virus and um, the the degree of spread. Um, uh, that's that, that's one number to look at, and, and that's high. The, the the other is you know what's happening with with uh, case numbers and hospitalization numbers and 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 death numbers. And one thing that's I think important to point out, you know, you you quoted some of the numbers from Georgia, including the number of cases. Um, we're we're underreporting our cases. Uh, if you look at the DPH website, they appropriately separate out positive antigen tests from positive PCR, which is the other testing modality test. But, but across um, many, if not most states in the country, a positive antigen test is considered a positive test. So if you, if you add that to the 773,000 you mentioned, we're actually at uh, about 950,000 cases. Uh, and, and similarly, if you look at probable deaths, which are, which, which are also uh, in most places, Canada, we're, we're um, over 15,000 deaths. So the point is, um, I, I don't, when, when people look at some of the case counts, I, I don't want them, as Dr. Del Rio said, to, to be inappropriately reassured that, well, things are looking better, I, I can relax things. In fact, with these new variants, uh, which based on CDC data and, and reports coming elsewhere, uh, we can reasonably assume are all over our state uh, and the fact that they are more transmissible uh, and, and both natural and vaccine immunity may be um, less strong uh, against these. For, for me, it's a time uh, to really double down on the things we need to be doing in communities to protect one another. And I'm talking about masks and social distancing and avoiding high-risk indoor settings like bars and nightclubs and, and you know, why? Why our, our governor continues to refuse to lean into appropriate public health measures like mass mandates and rolling back some of those high-risk indoor settings, I, I don't understand. But I think that the average consumer needs to understand that, that those are still really high-risk settings. All right. Uh, Ariel, I want to bring you in in a second, but, but, but Dr. Hyman just mentioned uh, something, um, and Dr. Hyman, you can take a crack at this, of course, and, and Dr. Del Rio, please weigh in. I, it, this is one of the questions that people are asking. We, we throw around terms like uh, positive antigen tests as opposed to positive PCR tests. Um, but uh, Dr. Del Rio, I don't know that people completely understand the difference between those two tests, which one is more reliable, how each is used. Could th that, that question keeps coming to me. Could you Start unpack that a little. Well, you know, it's 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 complicated, and I would say there's even a lot of physicians that don't really understand a lot of the differences. I think, you know, when I think about testing, I think about the PCR testing is fairly superior as far as as both its sensitivity and and specificity, but it's also a more complicated test, and it's also a test that requires more sophisticated equipment, and it takes has a turnaround time maybe a lot slower. The, the antigen tests tend to be, many of them tend to be very rapid tests, tend to be tests that you can get a result fairly quickly. So the antigen tests are much better tests, for example, for, for surveillance or for, for, for just the monitoring. So let's say uh, 
you know, the government bought uh, this Binax, Abbott Binax test, and this tests are, are really good to pick up individuals for positive. They may have some false negatives, especially in asymptomatic individuals. But if you are testing frequently because they're very easy to do and they're very cheap, which you can do with a PCR, then you could potentially pick individuals because, you know, think about in a business, if you said I'm going to test all my employees twice a week with antigen test or three times a week with antigen test at five bucks a shot, you would be able to then pretty much pick up people that are asymptomatic or early symptomatic and be able to, to, to prevent them. And a lot of the use of this test in, is really to prevent outbreaks and, and really to be able to determine if somebody – and you have to remind people a negative doesn't mean that you're not infected if, if, if you're asymptomatic. But it's really good at telling you somebody is positive. So, again, each test is a little different, but at the end of the day, you know, we just cannot be doing PCRs on everybody. PCRs are much better if you think about, you know, the, what we're doing in the hospital. On the opposite of the spectrum, a PCR may remain positive for a long time just because the virus particles remain there and doesn't mean you're, you're infectious. So we also learned that a PCR can give you some false positives. So at the end of the day, it really is a matter of, of using the right test in the right place at the right time. You know, Ariel, this is why I think people and, – and tell me if you're finding the same thing because you have certainly readers who are reaching out to you. I think what Dr. Del Rio just uh, told us is there's so many subtleties to the uh, way in which uh, the, the virus is being approached by, by uh, medical doctors, by public health officials and the like – uh, that it's it's hard for us to get it. There's it isn't as if we can say, oh, good. Here's the answer. Are you are your readers suggesting to you that there are lots of questions they they just are still up in the air about? You know, I think I think there's a couple kinds of readers. Um, I've got a lot of readers who uh, are uh, attached to the CDC and DPH websites, and they know the science uh, as it comes out day by day. And they're more than happy to talk the specifics. But then I think the vast majority of people, yeah, it, it, you know, it's, there's so many subtleties to it that the basics can get lost. And the basics are you know, all of the mitigation strategies that we've been talking about still work. And, uh, you know, testing is important. So, um, you know, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a valid point, and um, I think we just need to keep being clear on the communication. Um, okay, so, Dr. Hyman, uh, here's another question that has been uh, coming up recently. Uh, tell, now suddenly, especially with the variants, and I want to talk about the variants in a minute and the implication of seeing these variants appear, but before that, we're now being, it's now being suggested that perhaps we should think about wearing two masks, not just one. I've personally begun wearing two masks, so have the people in my family. What's the thinking behind that, and is that, uh, is that, a, uh, a, does that seem to be a correct strategy? Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question, and, and I appreciate your kind of introduction and, and talking about kind of the nature of evolving understanding. Uh, and then what you face, and, and a, a new novel virus, an unprecedented global pandemic, um, you don't know all the answers on day one. And as the science and the evidence evolves, your recommendations and guidelines should evolve with them. I think that's critically important for the public to understand. Um, I think we've always understood that there's kind of a hierarchy of masks in terms of their relative protection. 
some of the early CDC guidelines were based more on the lack of supply of masks and the need to prioritize them for healthcare workers than a compelling desire not to have average people wear masks. Um, and I think we, we, we have a much better supply now than we did, but the kind of the gold standard for a mask, uh, the N95 mask or KN95, um, is, is really still in most cases reserved for uh, healthcare workers and other high risk settings. Um, in terms of double masking, we, we know that a single layer of fabric um, is less protective than a double layer of fabric. Uh, and we know that if you put a filter, either a homemade piece of HEPA filter uh, or a store-bought filter in between those layers, even better. Um, we also know that a surgical mask, uh, a disposable surgical mask uh, that's worn in hospital settings is, pro is probably more protective than a cloth mask. The idea of double masking is either to wear a cloth mask over that kind of surgical mask uh, or to wear a two-ply cloth mask with a, with a filter in between. And I think that's a really valuable recommendation now that we know, number one, unquestionably the value of masks in reducing spread of the virus, and that we know that we have these new variants that are more contagious, uh, and this is really a time where we need to, to lean into the things that we know from a prevention perspective work. Dr. Del Rio? You know, I, I, I think that the most important thing is that we wear a mask, and we wear an appropriate mask, and as, as Dr. Hinman said, I think that having a multi-layer mask is, is appropriate. I don't think my concept of double masking is I tell people, if you wear a mask and I wear a mask, that's what I call double masking, right? I much better have you, <laughs> if you wear a mask and I wear a mask, that's the double masking I want. So wear a mask, wear appropriately. I mean, I get tired of seeing people with a mask below their nose or wearing their mask in their neck. Wear a mask, wear appropriately. Make sure it's a mask that fits on your face. A good test, there are two things that are good tests to do. One is try to breathe in. If the mask doesn't pull back on you, it's probably not tight enough. It probably doesn't have a nice fit. And number two, put a candle and try to blow a candle with your mask on. And if you're able to blow a candle, it's not thick enough. So a multi-layer you know, multi cloth mask that fits well, it's a good enough mask. And the most important thing is, again, not to think that the mask is the only strategy. I like to remind people about this Swiss cheese phenomenon, right? You want to put multiple layers. So wear a mask, but also socially distance, but also avoid going into, into crowded environments. And if you do multiple things, then your Swiss cheese, I tell people, you know, you get your Swiss cheese, and you, you really want to do is transform it into a hard piece of cheddar. You want no holes in there. And if you're able to prevent holes, then the virus is not going to get you. Ariel, I... Um what, what kind of I'm just curious, Ariel, uh, you and I are both journalists. You know, we're not the, the profession. We're not doctors like our two other <laughs> panelists are. Yep. What are you wearing? What kind of mask do you wear? Oh, yeah. So I've got some cloth masks off of uh, Etsy that are double layers of cloth. And then I've got a couple of N95s that I'll use if I'm going to a press conference with the governor or something. And some surgical masks, um, disposable surgical masks, kind of depends on the depends on the occasion. But if I'm shopping, I'll probably use the cloth masks. Um, I, you know, the the important thing is to do the best you can. We, it, it's un, it's really unfortunate that the messaging at the very beginning um, was 
through any shade at all on the whole idea of wearing a mask. What they were really trying to do was desperately preserve the, at that time, incredibly short supply of masks for um, workers. And they were terrified that if people knew how powerful masks are as a protective measure, that people would go and, um, you know, swamp the market by buying up all the masks. But they are a wonderful, wonderful, powerful protective measure if both people in a conversation or all the people in an area wear them. Just two other quick comments. Um, one is I think there's a misconception in indoor settings that if people are socially distanced, meaning more than six feet apart, it's not necessary to wear a mask. Uh, it is. Un unequivocally, it is. Uh, lots of studies showing how aerosol spreads in indoor settings. So the, the idea that while I'm apart from people indoor, I don't need a mask is a, is a, is a fallacy. And the other thing that I know we'll touch on when we dive into to talking about vaccines, I think there's also a misunderstanding uh, among people who are getting vaccinated that, well, once I'm vaccinated, I'm, I'm good and I can stop doing all these things that I've been doing around limiting my risk with wearing a mask, social distancing, avoiding high-risk settings. And that's also a misconception that I know we'll touch on. Yeah, I do want to talk about vaccines in a little while. But before I do, uh, Dr. Del Rio, um, we now are seeing in Georgia uh, the uh, presence of the variant from, what, Great Britain, the, the British variant. Um, has the South African variant, am I right, has shown up in more limited ways? And, and regardless of where the variants come from, help us understand if you can. Again, this is new science. We're, you're, you and your peers still looking at what these variants mean. Uh, are they more uh, deadly? We, we think they're more contagious. Give us a little uh, uh, summary of what these variants uh, portend for those of us in Georgia. Well, first of all, uh, you know, variants are expected because, in particularly with RNA viruses, they tend to, to mutate as they reproduce. That's what viruses do. And some of those variants are more transmissible. Some may be less susceptible to some of the monoclonal antibodies. But variants occur, again, when the virus is reproducing. So when we have transmission of the virus, then you're likely to see the emergence of variants. So the first thing I tell people is you're concerned about the variants, then we really want to hunker down and stop transmission. Because we can stop transmission of the virus. The virus is not reproducing. The virus doesn't produce variants. So the variants, what the variants are telling us is there is uncontrolled transmission. And that's the first thing to know. So controlling transmission is a critical component when you have variants. The, the, the one that everybody's concerned about right now, it's you know, called B117. It's also called the UK variant. This is a variant that appears to attach better to the ACE2 receptor and therefore appears to be 35 to 45% more transmissible. And while people say, well, it's not more it doesn't produce more severe disease. If you have more cases, you're going to have more people ill and you're going to have more deaths just because the numbers start, you know, are start playing out. Instead of having 10 people infected, you have 100. And, and that's the one thing that I'm very worried about is that we need to control transmission. And for that, you know, again, going back to mitigation strategies, avoiding indoor settings, and really getting your vaccine as soon as you're eligible for your vaccine is going to be really important. Because at this point in time, what we know is that the vaccines we have currently available, the Moderna 
and the Pfizer in this country work well against this variant. There's a little bit of concern in the South African variant that we have seen a few cases in this country, not yet in Georgia, and in South African uh, variant, there's a small study from South Africa suggesting that the South African variant may not be uh, uh, may not be impacted by the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so as a result of that, the South African government has put on hold vaccinating in their country with the AstraZeneca vaccine. But we're not using that vaccine in the U.S. So I don't want people to get scared. The most important thing is go and get your vaccine when you're eligible. And, and really, the government is doing a very good job right now to, you know, using the Defense Act, doing whatever possible to really scale up vaccination. I was very happy that this weekend we were seeing close to 2 million shots per day. If we can get that to two and a half, three million shots per day, we'll be able to vaccinate enough people. And right now, it's really a race between the virus and the vaccine. And in the meantime, as we have that race, keep your mitigation strategy. That is how we control this variant. Um, Ariel, I've got to get to a break in a minute, but I do want to get one additional question that I'm I'm getting a lot from uh, listeners uh, in. And, and I'm sure you're seeing it, too. There is a lot of controversy, lots of questions swirling around the notion of opening schools. Uh, you know, we're hearing from CDC and other public health experts, virologists and the like, that really schools are not particularly uh, vulnerable to spreading the coronavirus, but teachers are, are scared. They want to be vaccinated before they get back in. Ariel, this continues to be a real serious problem uh, to try to sort out here in Georgia and across the country, doesn't it? It is. And, I mean, the really important thing that sometimes gets lost in the conversation is, yes, the CDC came out uh, just a bit ago with a paper saying that schools uh, did, had not appeared to be a serious uh, point of spread, but there was a really big caveat in there. The really big caveat was if the schools are practicing all these uh, mitigation measures, including distancing, remember distancing within a classroom, distancing within a hallway where kids transfer from class to class, and if there was um, not uncontrolled spread in the community. So that's why it's not the easiest, as easy a question to answer as you might think. Uh, Dr. Del Rio, I corrected. I see a tweet for, I know you, both you and Dr. Hyman responded to some of the people who were tweeting to us questions. Did I see that you're a little skeptical about whether schools will be able to put in place the measures necessary to prevent spread? Am I right about that? I, if I'm wrong, I apologize. No, I think, I think, Bill, that I agree with what CDC is saying, and I agree with what Ariel said. I think we, you know, if we do the right thing in schools, if we have mitigation, if if people are wearing masks, if people are, you know, socially distanced and we keep, you know, good good ventilation in schools, I think schools can open safely. I think we don't need to wait for vaccination of teachers to open schools. We will get to vaccination of teachers, but I really think it's going to be very important to open schools as soon as possible. We have to get you know, mitigation in place. We have to have masking in place. And I will ask the school boards to really emphasize that. I mean, to me, to have the school boards yet not be mandating masks in schools, I think it's a problem. All right. Um, I've got to get to our first break in the show, but we have a lot more to talk about. I'd especially love to start a conversation about where vaccinations stand in the state of Georgia right now. And we'll get to that after these messages. 
Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC health policy reporter, Ariel Hart, Dr. Harry Hyman, and Dr. Carlos Del Rio join us today to talk to us about the virus and answer some of your questions, which we've been doing as we've gone along. I'm really grateful to all of you out there who responded to my tweet last week that you send us your questions. We're not going to get to all of them, I'm sure, uh, but we'll do our best. Ariel, let me start this vaccine segment uh, with you. You had a kind of an alarming report in the AJC the middle of last week suggesting, and I think the headline used the word chaos in terms of the rollout of the rollout of vaccine, uh, suggesting that supplies were simply not getting to the places that needed them, Grady Hospital being uh, one of those places. I think you said that DeKalb County Department of Public Health got no vaccine in the last uh, shipment or so. But the question becomes, is, is that problem now, are we moving to the other side of that problem. Have you seen anything in your reporting, and then I want to get the doctors into this, that suggests that, as Carlos Del Rio said before we went to the break, we vaccinated 2 million people the other day. So is this, you think this is turning, uh, Ariel, and you're probably going to be looking at a different circumstance uh, in the weeks ahead? It's improving. Um, that That's clear. And, um, but the... <laughs> The system is still really problematic. There, it, it's just inconceivable to me that um, that there can be as little visibility as there is into how many vaccine doses are coming to any given provider within the next two weeks. These hospitals, these vaccine providers, they don't know until, I mean, for sure, they don't know until they open the box how many vaccine doses they're getting that week. They are told uh, a couple of days ahead. Now, just now, um, within the last week, a new system has been put in place where they are uh, to be alerted on the Friday before shipments uh, how many doses they're expected to get. And some of them are still being surprised. It's it's really kind of inconceivable, but it's happening. But things are getting a bit better, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the federal government knows what a big problem it is now and is trying to give a little bit of certainty around how many doses are coming to a state within the next three weeks. And, and Ariel, you know, I, would, doctor- I would add to that, that I guess you said it absolutely right. The problem was also the state didn't know what was happening, what was coming yeah. to them. Yeah. Another uh, framing that we need to consider, because uh, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of judging the success uh, by the number of vaccines given. Uh, and, and while that's a really important metric, um, if, if the goal is only to give as many vaccines as possible, um, I, I can tell you what strategy will work. Well, we'll give it only to affluent white people living in major urban centers. Um, those are the people that can get, get where they need to get as quickly as they as as they want to. There there there's dense population, and we can forget about low income people and rural people. Um, I don't think that's the system we aspire to. Um, and I think that there, in addition to the, the the distribution aspect of this, 
there have been significant equity challenges in the way this is rolling out. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern. We, we talked about the issue of, of teachers. Uh, teachers were among the group of essential workers that were to be prioritized prior to healthy adults 65 and over. And it's only, in my view, because of the rocky rollout and a desire to have numbers that look better that we jump the 65 and over group ahead. I, I think that's a real problem. And I think we need to reconsider how we prioritize essential workers who, by the way, uh, are disproportionately low income and black and brown, disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. And based on studies coming out uh, from Kaiser Family Foundation, um, not getting access to vaccine the way others are. Dr. Del Rio and, and Ariel, both, I'd love for you both take a shot at what uh, Dr. Hyman's saying. So let me read you a tweet. Uh, that we got from uh, uh, a woman who uh, named Tracy who says, you may have seen the vaccine line of seniors in Savannah that was on NBC News. It dramatically skewed white for a majority black city. What should we be doing to increase racial equality in vaccine distribution? And do we have the uh, resources to do it? And then another tweet came in from someone else saying, how are affluent whites able to get vaccinated ahead of their grouping uh, as they travel to other cities for shots? How can this be uh, dealt with? Dr. Del Rio, I think Dr. Hyman raises a question that uh, covers a much broader area, the inequities in terms of COVID, in terms of who's getting it, and now who's getting vaccinated to deal with it. Well, you know, I think that he's absolutely right. I think there's, you know, the goal initially of the Biden administration was one million shots per day. And I kept on saying, you know, one million is one thing. One million with equity is a lot harder. And I think you need to remember that, that, you know, if you just want numbers, then you do what we're doing right now. If you want equity, you may say, look, let's slow. It's okay to be slower, but to ensure equity. I think the first thing you need is, is transparency on the data. I think, for example, if you look at the Kaiser Family Foundation data, you can look at the states that are reporting. You can see what percent of the African-American population, Hispanic population, Asian, white population is getting vaccination, what percentage of our cases, what percentage of our deaths, and what's the percentage of the population in that state. So you can follow this and say, and look at equity, and you can say, hey, you know, is this being rolled out with equity or not? The second thing is you need to work with the African-American and Hispanic population, particularly in the, in the Indian-American population. We hear a lot about the word hesitancy. I'm not sure there's, the word is hesitancy. They simply want questions answered. They have questions. They have concerns. And I think you have to work with trusted leaders in the community to increase vaccine acceptance. And that may take some time, but working with those trusted leaders in the community with African-American churches, with artists, with opinion leaders, you know, healthcare providers. We know that healthcare providers are important source of, of trust and information. So again, really emphasizing. And then you have to put vaccination sites at the places that need to be, right? This happened to us as a country with testing. When we looked at testing some months ago, the testing wasn't necessarily in the places that had higher incidence of disease. So again, you have to make sure that if this zip code is where most of the cases and most of the deaths are happening, let's make sure we got vaccination there. Go with your vaccine to the places that have most of the disease. Make sure that you have those 
those vaccine sites deployed in the places that are needed. But I will tell you that, you know, Governor Cuomo, for example, the other day was saying that he put all these vaccination sites in the Bronx and the people that were going to the Bronx to get vaccinated are white people from, you know, from the upper, uh, you know, upper east, west in, in Manhattan. Well, we have to avoid that. We have to make sure that the people in that community are the ones that are accessing that vac- the vaccine available there. Um, yeah, let me let me just throw one more uh, uh, element into this conversation, Ariel, and then Dr. Hyman. Um, when when Bill Fagey was on this show shortly after he uh, and, and Helene Gale, who, uh, who co-chaired the uh, uh, task force that looked at distribution in phases of the vaccine, uh, he he said that he knew one of the most controversial things that they were recommending was that the, early on in the process, uh, the most vulnerable populations should get the vaccine earlier. So, for instance, uh, they thought that people in prisons ought to get vaccine uh, sooner than many other groups because of the vulnerability there. Um, Ariel, uh, that's, you know, when you now talk instead of, say, prisons, but you talk about minority populations where, where the disease is more rampant, uh, you, you do wonder if there doesn't need to be more focus on how to get the vaccine to those vulnerable populations, Ariel. Right. You know, and, and so taking those two very separate populations, um, I think there's a, a a singular problem, which is lack of thought about how to get the vaccine into um, into a, a particular place. There, in the in the state of Georgia's plan, there was nothing about mandating making sure that vaccine got into correctional institutions. Um, there was a, a line that if a local sheriff wants to, we can set that connection up to DPH, which is also kind of extraordinary to me. Um, And then when you talk about getting the vaccine to populations that have been underserved, I mean, you've got, we've got one of the largest uninsured populations in the country. Georgia has the second or third highest uninsured population in the country. These are people who might not even have a primary care doctor. Um, and uh, if, if the people who are setting up the vaccine system think of everyone else as having the same kind of insurance that they have, the same kind of medical, uh, personal medical setup that they have, this is not going to work. Um, you know, uh, I think that there was a, a statement last week that in Fulton County, there is no vaccine site for in South Fulton County um, uh, run by the county. And so, you know, yes, people can go to the one downtown if they have vaccine, um, but there just needs to be a lot broader distribution of vaccine. There needs to be a lot of thought put into it. There needs to be a lot of communication. And I just I just want to say my admiration here for some of the leaders of color who have uh, gone out and um, and really done the work uh, publicizing their own vaccination and uh, giving advice to people in communities of color, uh, Dr. Kimberly Manning and some others. Um, but there, there just needs to be, I, I think, more vaccine in the state, and there needs to be better work around how people can get it. I mean, part of the problem is that to get a vaccine dose, you are in an Internet race with 
other people. So, um, you know, you've got people learning when the load of vaccine is going to arrive and then just trying to get on the Internet site and type their name in as fast as possible. Uh, That's not easy okay, for everyone. Okay. I, I I'm, I'm sorry, Errol. I, I yes, know that okay. Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Hyman are both eager to jump in, but I got to get our final break of the show out of the way. We got a lot more to talk about when we come back. Dr. Hyman and Dr. Del Rio, I know both of you wanted to jump in. As vaccine becomes more broadly available in Georgia, which does seem to be now the case that it is getting out there, this whole question of equity matters. And if you each had a final uh, thought on that, Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Hyman, uh, after him, why don't you go ahead? So I'll start by saying very quickly that, you know, let's just continue working on equity, continue to working with community leaders. Uh, I agree with Ariel, and I want to give a big shout out here to Tyler Perry, who really, you know, partnered with us to create what I think is a very, very good educational uh, documentary, a 30-minute documentary that was aired in bed and that you can find in YouTube uh, right now. I think it really provides a lot of information. My colleague Kimberly Manning and many others have been working on this, and we just need to work tirelessly to increase equity because the reality is if we are vaccinated, if everybody's vaccinated, we are safer. So increasing safety to the community is really what the goal ought to be. I, I agree completely with, uh, with with what Dr. Dr. Rio just said, but but I also agree with what uh, Ariel said about the lack of thought on the part of our State Department of Public Health. Uh, if you look at our our state plan, um, I, I would say it's pretty equity blind, um, and I think that's a problem. And I think we're seeing the the results of that problem. And I think that recognizing that it's the same challenges. Um, that have created inequities across a whole host of other health problems from maternal and infant mortality to diabetes and cancer that created the same conditions for the inequities we're seeing with COVID. Without matching resources to need and a targeted plan that particularly works with those populations being disproportionately impacted, we're going to keep seeing more of the same. So uh, I appreciate Dr. Del Rio's uh, positive shout out I'd like to give a call out to our DPH commissioner to meaningfully put in place a plan that ensures that there is uh, equity as things roll out further. Um, let me, if I may, turn to some of the more fundamental questions about people who are now uh, getting uh, vaccinated. And, and one of the more common questions that I've gotten is, do we believe that the that that if you get two shots, uh, with a formula, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, that the formula that was created will, in fact, protect against the new variants, whether it's the uh, Great Britain variant or the South African variant. We, we don't really have enough data on that to know, do we, Dr. Del Rio? Well, you know, this is, uh, this is an, again, an emerging science. At this point in time, we have evidence that these two vaccines protect against the, the variants we currently have. And, and that, I think, is what's important. I think the data that myself and many others are waiting to see is whether these vaccines prevent you from getting infected and prevent you, therefore, from transmitting, because that really is going to be the game changer. At this point in time, we know this, this vaccines prevent you from getting um, uh, sick and, more importantly, prevent you from having severe disease but, and, and death. And that's really a, a very important thing. If we can prevent mortality, it's going, to be, it's going to be really wonderful. But if we can prevent 
acquisition, it will be a game changer. And that's the data that we're all waiting for. So again, while I'm worried about variants and the impact of the vaccine, what I'm more concerned is about not having enough people vaccinated. Let's, as a nation, continue vaccinating people. You know, Israel has already seen a drop in infections and a drop in hospitalizations in the population over 60 that has been vaccinated. So let's try to get there. Um, Dr. Del Rio, one quick note. Let me just say this and then get you back in the uh, uh, conversation, Dr. I believe that Emory, which worked on trials for the Moderna vaccine initially, you're now, Emory is now beginning new trials that will look at the South African variant. Is that correct? Well, I'm not sure about that because, again, we, we're looking at South African variant primarily in the lab, right? But the reality is, is really in, in where, those fact, where those strains are, are, are predominant that you can actually look at the data. So really what needs to happen is Moderna and Pfizer need to do a study in South Africa because that's really where you're going to know if indeed protects uh, you against those strains or not. Okay, okay. I got Dr. Hyman, go ahead. I was just going to reiterate, I, I think we have compelling evidence that the two current vaccines are very safe and very effective, but 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 that effectiveness, as we understand it today, is is imperfect, uh, and that's why, uh, in addition to getting vaccinated, it's just critically important, which is why I'm reemphasizing the need for people to continue to uh, practice the, the 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 safety precautions that they should be doing already around wearing masks, social distancing avoiding high-risk indoor settings, even after they've gotten vaccinated. I, I've had friends suggest that, well, once we all get vaccinated, we can all hang out together indoors um, uh, without masks. And, and, and that, at this point, based on what we know, I think is a bad idea. Part of the problem, Ariel, is that once people are vaccinated, we still don't have enough data to tell us whether or not, uh, despite the fact you may not get sick, you still may be able to shed virus, Right. Yeah, I mean, that's always been the problem is, is the number of asymptomatic uh, cases that COVID has. Um, and, you know, I'll also put in there the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines against the variant that we have had are spectacularly effective. Their 95% is just fantastic. But that still means that one in 20 people gets the vaccine and, you know, somehow it just doesn't work as well. So once we are all vaccinated, sure, we can hang out. But... Uh, that will be a long, long time. And um, so, you know, we, we still need to keep practicing. Well, Ariel, while the ball's in your court, I, I want to pick up something that Dr. Hyman mentioned uh, quite a while ago during the show, and that, in fact, was a question that any number of people sent me. Um, you've followed the way in which the state has responded to uh, coronavirus uh, since the very beginning. And there are any number of people who continue to ask the question of why the state does not put a mask mandate in place. You know, we sort of stopped asking that question a number of months ago because it was clear that it wasn't going to happen. It was a big issue back when uh, the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, defied the governor on that uh, subject and got into a war with him that, that led to court. Um, but it, it, talk to us about, I mean, what should we take from the fact that the state continues to rely on people's best uh, instincts and, and, and what they themselves choose to do or not do? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty clear how important masks are. It's pretty clear how powerful they are. Um, like not driving drunk, that's a pretty good protection against uh, 
getting into accidents and hurting either yourself or somebody else. Um, but uh, there are laws against driving drunk. There's no mandate uh, against going maskless. Um, and I, I think it's the governor said uh, said he kind of led on to his motivation at one point early in the heat of the argument, which was that you don't want to uh, put in place a mandate that you can't enforce. So, uh, you know, I I know that Savannah, when they had their uh, mask mandate, they didn't do it punitively. They did it kind of uh, helpfully. The police officers carried masks with them, and if someone was violating the order, they would offer them a mask and a little bit of education. But, um, you know, I, I think there's um, there's a political issue there with, a lot of areas of the state where mask wearing can become heated. Um, but, you know, to, to the governor's credit, he's also done a good job on messaging. If you see him in a group of people, you're likely to see him wearing a mask. Um, and he did a mask tour. So at least the message is there. Um, I, Dr. Hyman, real quick, because I have one last question that I want to make sure we get to, but go ahead and respond to that. I was just going to say that, that mask mandates are a proven public health tool during this pandemic. Um, you know, I think our governor has said, you know, he'll be following the data. He's been following it, but he, from my perspective, hasn't been appropriately responding to it. I think especially in the context of opening schools, it's critically important that we have a mask mandate because I think the question is not do we open schools, but how do we do it and ensure the safety of not only the children, but the teachers and staff. All right. I, I really want I've been saving the last just a last question. And and uh, I know that there are no definitive answers to this question. We are not far away from reaching about one year, March 16th, which was kind of the date a year ago when we recognized everything was locking down, at least temporarily. For a while back then, Dr. Del Rio, many people thought, well, we'll be locked down for several months and then everything will resume normal life. We're now a year in. With the vaccine uh, being more broadly distributed, uh, if people continue to uh, use social distancing and masking, is there now some kind of realistic end in sight when life will resume to nor fairly normal? Are we still, is 2021 going to still be problematic all the way till the end of December? You know, Bill, this virus has proven to be a formidable enemy. I think any, none of us, quite frankly, you know, I wrote a paper in JAMA published February 5th, and when I read it again last Friday, I, I just could not believe, you know, we had back then 11 cases diagnosed in the U.S., you know, where we are, I, if somebody had told me we were going to be at, you know, over 30 million infections and close to half a million deaths in our country, I would have said that you were joking with me. So I think the first thing is we need to be humble. I don't like to make predictions because, quite frankly, um, you know, I don't see yet an end. But I see positive signs. I mean, I think having vaccines is really amazing. And again, if, if we can get more people vaccinated, we can rapidly roll out vaccines, get, you know, 60, 70 percent of the population vaccinated, which is not going to be easy. But if we can do that, we're going to be able to have a more normal life. Is it going to be the life we had before? I don't think so. I think it's going to take some time because, again, we have a global pandemic. And if we don't, well, somebody's infected globally, nobody's safe globally. So we also need to work as a nation in, in global leadership to ensure people globally are vaccinated. 
Doc, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, you get the last word on today's show. And thank you, Dr. Del Rio, Dr. Harry Hyman, Ariel Hart, for joining us for a really informative conversation. Thank you out there for all the questions you sent for our panel to deal with today. We're out of time for today. Uh, I'll see you again tomorrow. But as I say after at the end of every show, take care, stay healthy, and wear at least one mask. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>